Welcome to Studio 2 on a Thursday. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Glad to have everyone with us. Happy 215 Day, Ooh. everybody. Do Think about it. That's think a about thing. It. Think That's about a thing. <laughs> 215 Day. Um, and on this 215 Day, we have a couple of really interesting segments coming yeah. your way. The big conversation today is about risky play. Mm. Centered on this idea that perhaps we're being a little too cautious Mm -hmm. when it comes to letting our children explore their environments and their world. There's a new playground in South Philadelphia that leans into some of these concepts of risky play. We're going to talk with one of the designers, Megan Talarowski. We're also going to speak with a professor at the University of British Columbia, Mariana Brussoni. Canada's uh, pediatric affinity group has just issued some new guidelines about letting kids get a little riskier. Yeah. And I think this segment has some real kids these days comment potential. So I want you to get those in right now. Studio2 at WHYY.org or give us a call 888-477-9499. Yeah. The question is, are you a helicopter parent or do you believe in free range play? I know when I was growing up, we were just allowed to kind of go out, you know, do our thing. Yeah. And not so much anymore. So is it parents is it kids we'll talk about all of that also the lunar new year is underway we had a conversation uh, earlier this mm-hmm. week with ellen yin a local restaurateur and grace lynn a children's author grace just authored a wonderful new book called chinese menu and it's all about the folk tales and the history behind the dishes at a chinese american restaurant that you would typically find Really interesting conversation. You would not expect that all of these dishes have folklore behind them, but they do. Mm -hmm. Um, And we dove into some of that and just talked generally about Lunar New Year traditions. It was a lovely conversation, and we are excited to bring it to you. Yeah, that's our third segment on this Thursday. But first, Avi, we're going to dig into the—oh, one more? No, No, first. I'm saying first. first, I'm holding up a one. Yeah, first, we're going to dig into the news right now. Um, <laughs> That's my bad. I take I'll take the L on that. I was just saying first segment. Go yes, ahead. First segment. We're we're gonna get talk about the news right now. Um, you know we've been talking about AI or artificial intelligence. You know multiple times on this show because it's invading all parts of our lives, and now not surprisingly, undergraduates can now get a degree in it. And University of Pennsylvania is going is set to become the first Ivy League institution to offer an undergraduate degree in AI. Penn says they want to train leaders in this field. The the school issued a press release saying, quote, the rapid rise of generative AI is transforming virtually every aspect of life and that their program will allow students to unlock AI's potential. I say it's all about if you can't beat it, join it. You know, other universities have followed suit back in 2018. Carnegie Mellon introduced the first bachelors in AI. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can make a lot of money if you're on the front end of this. I mean, some engineers at like OpenAI, they make $800,000 a year. That's a pretty good salary, Yeah, I I would say. You're underselling Um, the salary there. That's an excellent salary. Um, And this program, it, it kicks off this fall. Current Penn students, they can apply to transfer in the program this spring. Uh, it'll be out of Penn School of Engineering and Applied Science. And people who want to join the class for 2025, they can apply beginning and fall of this year. So so I can go to Penn. Yeah. Get, get yourself my a degree, degree in uh-huh. AI. Yeah. I mean, mm. uh, you, <laughs> here's the skeptical voice. Go ahead. Go okay. ahead. Go ahead. 
uh, it's not about this specific degree program, uh-huh. which I'm sure is lovely. I always am generally a little skeptical mm-hmm. when there are new degree programs that are a little too on trend because it feels sometimes like marketing to me. Mm-hmm. I don't doubt that knowing how AI works mm-hmm. and being able to build AI tools is very useful mm-hmm. for a young person attending college today. I wonder if you do need a degree designation for artificial intelligence or you could just have classes within an old degree context Mm -hmm. because sometimes it feels like marketing more than an actual evolution of academic thought. But I mean, the the little caveat I will throw out there is that they will teach ethics of AI. Which they could do anyways. Just, yeah, that's true. Of course. You could take a class. This Is this worth a degree or is this just a couple classes? There are a lot of wacky college degrees out there. Uh-huh. And I do think a lot of times it is about getting people to talk about the fact that the degree exists. And like that's what we're a, doing right now. Exactly. <laughs> there's a comedy degree at Humber College in Canada. You can get a degree in comedy. Hey. You know, well. I, which apparently best. we need. We Yeah. And and moving on to something more serious, Avi. Yeah. So th- there were a lot of uh, striking images that came out of the unrest um, that yeah. followed George Floyd's murder mm-hmm. in Minneapolis in 2020. And you might remember a lot of them, but but one that really stuck out to a lot of people was a video of a Philadelphia police officer named Joseph Bologna striking a, mm-hmm. a protester named Evan Gorski with a baton. Mm-hmm. That ended up leading to charges against Bologna, um, and yesterday mm-hmm. he was found not guilty of those charges. Uh, it was a 30-minute deliberation by the jury, incredibly quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has now been cleared in this criminal case. It's a simple assault case and possessing an instrument of crime. But it does seemingly, you know, barring an appeal, which seems unlikely here, put a coda on this one moment that for a lot of people did define those handful of days in Philadelphia in the summer of 2020. Yeah, and I will say that Victor Gorski said he would still like an apology from the officer. He did get a settlement from the city, but there was a lot of scrutiny of police during that time, during that moment in time. Um, But, you know, it's very hard to convict a a, a police officer. I mean, the use of force uh, code says force is justified when a subject resists arrest or appears to threaten bodily harm. And clearly the jury sided with the officer in this case. But, 30 minutes. Uh, yeah, 30 minutes. So you're, you're this was ho- not a close call. Not a close call at all. So you're I'm just hopeful that the community will accept this verdict. The DA's office said that they accept it. Um, you know, there had been a lot of investigations of this. And now we can say that this officer hopefully can go back to their life and not have this scrutiny. But um, I, I'm just hopeful that the community accepts the outcome of this case. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to the next story, Cherry. Yes. Um, so during winter months, some folks feel a little less than cheerful, a little more depressed than they might in other seasons. Well, a new study says exercise can help cheer you up. How so? <laughs> well, <laughs> according to the British Medical Journal, they have a new study that came out this week. They says they say that you know walking, jogging, strength training, Tai Chi, other physical movement has shown benefits when it comes to treating depression. I know I always feel better when I exercise. And they said the more intense, even if you just intensify it for just a few minutes, that adds to uh, to helping you through the uh, depressed times. Yeah. And so exercise, 
I mean, whenever the doctors say you ever, whenever you have issues, they say diet and exercise. Well, exercise could be a big benefit when you're going through, um, you know, times of depression. Yeah. And I think it's good that we expand the way we mm-hmm. think about mental health and its connection to physical health. I do think sometimes we default to, you know, what are the things that can help us improve mental health? Therapy, medication. And we yeah. don't always pull in the physical, but clearly there's a link. This was a meta-analysis of mm-hmm. 218 yeah, studies. 14,000 subjects involved yeah, in so, Yeah, so that's pretty convincing. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice way to reframe and rethink mental health because I do think sometimes we isolate it yeah. in our minds and we think of it just as something that you address with you know first-order mental health tools instead yeah. of thinking about you know a more holistic approach now motivation probably is going to be an issue when you're feeling depressed but if you can push yourself to get a, that little bit of exercise you don't need to be an athlete but just doing something it it helps tremendously so one more story before we go cherry yes snow oh is coming back don't don't i like your sound effects mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it looks like Friday night into Saturday, could see two to three inches of snow here along the I-95 corridor. Um, I don't have much more to say about this other than it's going to snow. Do you have anything more to say about it, Cherry? Um, not really. You know, that groundhog, you know, supposedly did not see his shadow. So, I mean, we're getting this extra winter you know, but we again, they're only 39% right, you know, but you got questions. Phil. <laughs> I have questions for Phil. Yeah, I, I do. I really do. <laughs> there is data that has been shown to me that suggests people like hearing about the weather mm-hmm. on the radio. I am intensely skeptical of this data. Do you think we should talk about the weather more on Studio Email 2? Us. Email us. Studio, Studio 2 at WHYY.org. You can even call us 888-477-9499. More seriously, you could also call us um, or email us about Risky Play because that's the next segment we're going to move to. Cherry, we've been talking about this. Do we need to reframe the way we think about children's play and the limitations we put on that? And we're going to talk with two folks in the next segment. Um, One, as we mentioned earlier, is someone who helped design this new playground in South Philadelphia that's getting a lot of buzz. Um, The other is a researcher from Canada, a country that is clearly going through, you know, a a reshuffling of how they think about play. And I just want to throw out here, President's Day, the weather will be nice so you can take your kids. More weather talk. Thank God. The playground. So (laughs) you'll be able to implement some of the things you learn in the next segment. So stick with us. Studio 2. We'll be right back. We're just going to talk about the weather, the whole next segment. (laughs) Just weather, weather, weather. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. To the children out there and the young at heart, (laughs) welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, you are a father of a young child. I am. So this next segment is totally up your alley. We're talking risky play. New guidelines on play from the Canadian Pediatric Society say play harder, play higher, play faster, take risks. And to the parents out there, take a step back. Makes you wonder, is there something to all of this, Avi? 
I think there might be. Mm. And there's a local playground putting some of this to the test. The Anna C. Verna Playground at FDR Park in South Philly opened in October last year. Its designers say it's a play space designed for all ages and abilities. And Cherry, after going there, Mm -hmm. I was pretty happy to be a parent because, let's be honest, you are never too old to play. And I did go down some of the slides and I had a blast. That's pretty cool. I've seen it on video and it looks so much fun. So in good old Studio 2 fashion, we want to hear from the people who want to convince us that a saw, a hammer and a nail make for good play. And with us today is Megan Tolerowski. She is the executive director of Studio Ludo, a local nonprofit that helped to design the playground we just talked about. We're also speaking with Mariana Brussoni, professor at the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia, who can help us with the new guidelines for risky play. Megan and Mariana, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having us. I'm delighted to be here. Before we get into the conversation, folks, fellow parents, I know you might be a little worried. Maybe you're really happy about this. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Give us a call, 888-477-9499. You can also email Studio Two at WHYY.org. And Mariana, I want to start with you because we're talking about risky play. On one hand, there's swings and steep slides. And on the other hand, there's knife juggling. So <laughs> let's lay out the parameters. When we talk about risky play, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah, I think that's important to do because when people hear the word risk, they often freak out. Um, But in fact, what we remind people is, you know, some of the easiest ways to think about this is think back to your favorite childhood play memory. Most people think about being outside with friends, hanging out, you know, in the in the neighborhood or in the forest. And the things that they were getting up to were most likely risky play. So things like climbing higher than they're used to, uh, wandering without adult supervision, uh, play fighting, building dens. Those kinds of things are what we have in mind when we talk about risky play. Um, But of course, it can look different for different kids. So some kids have, you know, more sensations seeking they want to push themselves further or they have more capacity they're more used to things so that they can push themselves further so it can look very different depending on the kids what doesn't it look like like is there something that you could tell us categorically is too far well it really depends on the situation and the child um and and the child and what we want is for the child to gain confidence and understanding what they're capable of and to look at their environment to be able to judge the risks and manage those risks and that's something that's built over time um and so if, you know for example uh children who you know live near a busy highway or a train track or something like that they're probably going to be quite a bit older before say they can walk to school on their own or something like that so you really have to consider the environment the child the capacity capacities, what they're comfortable with, et cetera. Megan, uh, I want to bring you in the conversation. What's the benefit of all this? Like, why shouldn't I just wrap my kid up in bubble wrap, get him to 18 <laughs> out of the house? I mean, like, like what is the, because I don't, we're not just doing it to do it, right? Mm-hmm. What is the benefit of risky play? So when we talk to parents and we, we ask them to imagine the kind of kids that they're helping to raise, um, we're asking them a you know, are you interested in kids that are confident, um, that are collaborators, that are 
risk takers, but we, so we're defining risk taking in a different way in adults. It's people that are willing to try new things or, um, you know, maybe like leave one job to, to follow their passion. So if we're talking about that kind of grown up, then we need to backtrack and think about what are the skill sets we need to build in childhood to create those types of people. And so when we're talking about risk taking, we are talk- Mariana's talking a lot about physical risk taking, which is also really important. You were talking before about mental health. So if we're talking about kids that have um, strong physical bodies and good sound mental health, we want to get them outside moving, connecting and taking risks. And I want to bring in a caller because this is the other side because, you know, a lot of parents have gotten nervous and we'll talk about how we got here after this. But we have Rebecca from Philadelphia who says kids like you can get in trouble for letting kids be too free range. Rebecca, you're on Studio 2. What's your question or comment here? Uh, Thank you. I was going to say that, um, you know, uh, it's beyond being helicopter parents, you know, uh, a child under a certain age walking out alone can get reported on by neighbors or authorities. And you can have social services in front of your door for letting your kid be out and about by themselves. Hmm. And that's that's something that I I know a lot of parents think about. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. And that goes to my follow up question to both you, um, both of you here. How do we get here? Because Rebecca brings up a very important point. And I think a lot of parents have gotten nervous. A lot has changed over the past 30 years. Um, How have we gotten to this place where parents are so nervous about allowing their kids just to roam and explore and to take more risks? And Mariana, I want to start with you. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, actually. Um, So we saw that this trend uh, started happening, you know, around the the late 80s. um, And it coincided with a few different things. But uh, I think probably one of the easiest things to point to is this move towards what we call intensive parenting. Um, And so it's parents being much more involved in their kids' lives and wanting to make sure that they get the right experiences and and spend their time, you know, in, in ways that build their brains, such as, you know, taking music or um, languages or, you know, or, or soccer practice or things like that. Um, and so what's th- what that's meant and that and that came from, you know, an increasing inequity in society. Right. So you had the post-war boom where parents could, I uh, say, have a high school education and, and have a very reasonable life. Uh, but then, you know, things got more and more competitive as the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. And you see that parents are realizing, oh, boy, if my child is going to have a similar lifestyle to mine, they actually need higher levels of education, more achievement, etc. And so you had this real push move towards intensive parenting um, and a norm around what a good parent looked like that did involve this, like your kids are doing the right activities, quote unquote, and that they're supervised and and a sense that they need adults to take care of them so that, you know, their free time was restricted um, and it was seen that that actually play is frivolous and not Mm. necessary to get them where we need them to go. Yeah. And then you add, you know, you know, media, a sense that there's lots of danger everywhere and and screens in everybody's hands, lots of interesting things to do on screens. And so you have kind of the situation that we have now. Mm. And and what does that look like, Megan, when we talk about play spaces? Like, how did that evolve there? So it is actually pretty interesting if you look at the trends 
of the way that play spaces have been designed over time. We have a, a very clear perception because our, our memories are short. So if you ask a kid or, or an adult even to draw a play space, it's going to be some posts, some platforms, a slide, a ladder. But if you look over the course of time, playgrounds have been much riskier and much more beautiful and artistic over time. And so play and playgrounds are kind of responding to societal pressures. Um, so in the 80s, exactly at that same time frame that Mariana is talking about, there was a lot of pressure about keeping kids safe. And so playgrounds got shorter, lower, safer, more plastic. And we're kind of responding against that. We're starting to see this trend away from that because now we're responding to research. Um, Can I ask you about that research, Megan? Mm-hmm. This is something that really stood out to me. This idea that quote unquote riskier play spaces, riskier playgrounds actually result in fewer injuries. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that really what the research says, Megan? And, and if so, why? Well, ma- that's actually Mariana's research, so she could probably respond <laughs> best to that. Ma- um, you want Mariana to take it? Yeah, take okay, that one. Mariana, go ahead. Happy to, yeah. So I, I'm an injury prevention researcher. I've been doing it for ten, 20 years, and I'm a developmental psychologist as well. So I've been really fascinated by this, right? So are kids getting more injured, or actually, is this a way to prevent injuries? And what we found is that keeping kids safe means letting them take risks. And and what I mean by that is that they have to develop the critical thinking and the risk management skills through these risky play experiences in environments that are relatively safe. You know, they have they have a lot lot of the really serious dangers controlled. And when we look at injury stats, kids are not having serious injuries or dying on playgrounds or during play. And so these are really ideal situations for them to figure out and kind of push themselves how far they can go and figure out what they're capable of and how the world reacts to them so that then they can take those risk management skills and critical thinking skills and apply them in situations where there's not an adult around telling them what to do and how to do it. Mm. One of the Mm. things that stood out to me, Mariana, and and you can even comment on this, Megan, is that kids who take more risk with with play are less likely to be bullied. How does that sort of connect with riskier play? How does bullying or uh, being more susceptible to bullying connect to, uh, you know, play in, in a sense? Yeah, it's pretty fascinating stuff, actually. And it relates to Megan's comment around mental health, um, as well as kind of just the critical thinking skills. So we know that in risky play, that, you know, kids out there playing with each other, that that builds their social and emotional skills. Mm. So they get, they become better at hanging out with each other and compromising and those sorts of things, which is really helpful for friendships and, and that sort of thing. But they also build self-confidence, um, you know, realizing that they can actually do things, that they are capable. And and when things go wrong, it helps them build resilience. Mm-hmm. So they they also know that, you know, the world's not going to fall around them if, if, you know, they get hurt or something like that. And so all of that, they can really build their mental health and well-being to become more resilient when things happen, to be a better friend and colleague and peer, um, and to be able to kind of withstand things that might be too challenging for other children that don't have these experiences. I want to read in an email from Matthew who says, As a parent on the playground, I always tried to calculate the worst case outcome. And was that acceptable? If the absolute worst case is a broken arm or leg, I can live with that. If the worst case is a cracked skull, I can't. This mm-hmm. goes, Megan, to the role of parents mm-hmm. in all of this. And, and what is their role? When do they need to watch like hawks and when should they just walk away? And, of course, there's a mm-hmm. gradient between that. Like, like when you think about your 
the space in South Philly that you helped design. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the role of parents in that play space? So I've actually talked about this. Um, We study play behavior as well. So we've uh, looked at over 60,000 people in 100 different play environments in the U.S. and the U.K. And what we find is that half of the people in playgrounds are not under the age of 12. They're not kids. They're actually teens, adults, and seniors. So when we think about the role of the adult in the play space, there's the sort of baseline, like they're there to bring the kids there. They're there to help younger kids especially understand these risks that they're taking and to help them take Uh, graduated risks, sort of micro-dosing themselves with risk Mm. so that they learn how their physical bodies work so they can have that confidence that we're talking Mm. about. But then I want them to have a good time too, to be resilient themselves, to have strong physical bodies, to have good mental health. So when we were thinking about the design of the Annecy Verna Playground at FDR, we were really interested in creating a community space that was open to people of all ages. So the swing is sort of the center feature, the mega swing. It's the biggest swing in North America. You guys got to see this thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge swing it's, it's pretty epic. Um, and what has been so amazing about it is that it does have kids on it, but it actually has a ton of teenagers and grownups. Mm-hmm. And it's really great to just see the smiles on people's faces. And I think at this point, sort of a signifier of a success of a good playground is if you see a grandparent swinging on that swing or sliding down the slide and saying woohoo. Like, <laughs> that's what I want to see. I want to see strong bodies, good mental health, good social relationships throughout life. I love it. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the benefits of risky play with Dr. Mariana Brussoni, professor at the University of British Columbia, who's done research on the benefits of risky play. Also, Megan Talarowski, executive Executive Director of Studio Ludo, Philadelphia Parks and Recreation hired the company to help design that new playground at FDR Park. Are you a helicopter parent? Do you believe in free range play for your kids? How do you see your role in your children's play? Call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Comment from Chris from Robbinsville, New Jersey, who says there can be pressure to take too many risks, peer pressure. My brother was there to take the New York subway and disappeared all day until the cops found him. And and where is the limit to the, this risk? Of course, with the playground, you know, there's, there's you know, high swings, monkey bars, super high. People can, um, you know, get that little bit of, of a fear factor. But where is the line at, as, as far as like what kids should be leaning into when we're talking about risky play? I mean, I, I think it's also important to just think about where that play is happening. The, um, the person from before was talking about the how it feels as a parent to be able to allow your kids to be free range. And mm-hmm. so I think the, the role of the playground is to create an environment where everybody is together, playing together, taking risks together. And so we need to provide more spaces like that that are more accessible to more neighborhoods around the city um, and give kids opportunities for risk-taking in a setting like that as opposed to on the street or on the subway where we know there's – because when we're talking about risk, especially in Philadelphia, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of other dangers. And we need to be aware of that um, as designers of not just playgrounds but also the built environment of the city. Mariana, I want to bring you back in the conversation because I feel like in my head I'm dancing around a conundrum, which is that I accept that risky play can deliver benefits to a large group of kids. We talked about microdosing risk. And, you know, imagine that that benefit being spread out over many, many, many kids. But if that approach has tragic consequences for even one kid, 
it can feel like it's it's not worth it, right? Mm-hmm. And so help me grapple with that, the sort of idea, and a commenter brought this up, that that worst case scenario is lingering and is gonna inhibit you from embracing this type of philosophy. Yeah, and that's something that comes up a lot, right? So the parents' fears around, yeah, it's rare, but what about if it's my kid? Yeah. Um, but I guess, it, you know, I can quote some injury stats to you that might kind of put this into a clearer focus. So, uh, you know, uh, these are Canadian stats. I apologize. I don't have the U.S. stats. <laughs> we accept these but, as valid, yes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we, we look at stats across Canada from, we have stats from 2007 to 2022. So that's many, many, mm-hmm, many years mm-hmm. of statistics on child injury deaths. Over the course of those entire, that you know, that entire span of time, there have been two deaths from falls from play equipment. Two. Mm. You know, at the same time, we're talking hundreds of deaths from kids in, in cars yeah. as passengers, right? And yet we accept those risks all the time. Um, and the other thing that we have to consider is the risks of not letting kids do this. Mm. And so we are seeing emerging in our research what's happening with kids that have kind of these overprotective backgrounds, you know, a lack of um, these kinds of experiences. And you see greater levels of anxiety and depression, um, as Megan had mentioned, less of a willingness to take those kind of even emotional risks, you know, to put themselves out there. And we all know, you know, that that the future of our society rests in a population that's willing to take risks and try things out and fail. Mm. And you can't learn that any other way, but by doing it and trying it. Yeah. Mm. And, and Megan, you've said that playgrounds should let you get hurt like a little bit or the risk should be there like a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and that's part of the joy. Mm-hmm. You have said this. So many parents are even against their kid, their kids getting even a little scrape. Mm-hmm. So I want you to talk about how a little bit of hurt can mm-hmm. be helpful. Well, bumps and scrapes are part of life, right? Yeah. We, we acknowledge that. I mean, falling down is part of life. Getting up is living. It's one of my favorite quotes. Um, we have to understand that we can get a little bit physically hurt and be okay. We can get a little bit emotionally hurt and be okay. And it's having those those micro doses where you you experience it, you kind of feel your feelings about it, and you're like, I, I survived. And you sort of level up in your level of confidence and your ability to navigate even more significant injury or harm in, in other settings as you grow into your teen years or into adulthood. Yeah, you see kids that they scream sometimes they get a little boo boo. You're like, it's okay. And then they, then they, the next time, maybe they don't even cry at all. They can just yeah, keep it moving. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I want to read in at least a couple more comments before we wrap up this segment. Comment from Claire. This is humorous, but has some truth in it. Mm. Um, I always bring my kids to the playground, and the minute we arrive, <laughs> one of them has to use the bathroom. No one remembers to put bathrooms close to the playground. Playing with a full bladder, that's risky, risky play. play. I love Thank that. you, Claire. Uh, Shirley dropped by during our Instagram office hours before mm-hmm. the show and said, there should be some sort of balance. I once witnessed a situation where a parent put a toddler up on a high platform at a playground and then walked away, and the kid fell after about a minute. Mm. I mean, Mariana, you talked about this. It's all about context here. Are there benchmarks or guidelines that parents can think about when they're trying to assess, is my kid old enough for this? 
Yeah, well, and that uh, that example is a good one. So we don't encourage, for example, parents to lift kids up onto platforms. It's really, you know, when the child can make it up on themselves, then then they're ready to do those things. Um, and parents' roles are really to support the kids' risk management, right? So, for example, kind of cueing them. Uh, so what's your plan now? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have enough room for that stick? You know, where are you going to put your foot next? You know, those kinds of things rather than kind of fast-tracking uh, the kids', uh, you know, say, heights or things like that. Um, the other concept that might be helpful is is thinking about a risk versus a hazard. Mm. So a, a risk being like, you know, a, something that kids should be allowed to assess and make a decision for themselves how they want to engage. A hazard being something that the kids really can't manage or need help mm. managing. Uh-huh. So for example, broken equipment on a playground or, or bro- mm. broken glass or yeah. things like that, where it's not necessarily the parents have to step in, but they have to be more aware that kids maybe can't handle that and they need to support it. And that, that is Mariana Brussoni. I'm so sorry, Megan, we're out of time, but Mariana Brussoni, professor at School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, Megan Talarowski, executive director of Studio Ludo here in Philly, and we love the, the word studio here. The I love it. <laughs> and congratulations. Congratulations on the playground. Thank honestly. you so much. It, it, it's a beauty. Yeah. Um, I wish we had more time, maybe another day, but coming up, we're going to have a conversation yes. about Chinese food in the Lunar New Year. Stick with us. This is Studio 2 on WHYY. Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I am hungry. I mean, I'm Avi Wolf and Aaron. I'm sorry. Uh, Chinese food, we love too. it. <laughs> Scallion pancakes, chow mein, Chinese hot pot, spring mm. rolls. Just a few of our favorites. We got a little curious recently about the stories behind these dishes, and we found all the answers in a new book called Chinese Menu, the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods. The book is by acclaimed author Grace Lin. It's full of tales based on real events and Chinese folklore. This week, in the midst of Lunar New Year celebrations, we sat down with Grace and James Beard award-winning restaurateur Ellen Yen. She is founder of High Street Hospitality Group, which owns popular Philly restaurants like High Street and Fork. And as we enter the year of the dragon, we Mm. talked about traditions, myths, and of course, food. But we started with some Lunar New Year basics from Grace Lynn. Basically, it's the start of the new year according to the lunar calendar, which is the calendar that many Asian countries have followed in ancient times. And so because of that, it's just been a traditional thing that we've always followed. It's it's like it's bigger than Christmas. Really. Bigger <laughs> than Christmas. I mean, we shut down like you have 12 days of Christmas, right? But there's 15 days of lunar new year, you know, so it's pretty big. And Grace, what were your... Uh, memories of the Lunar New Year growing up? Like, what's if, if I say, like, this is your essential childhood Lunar New Year, what springs to mind? Well, I grew up here in the United States. So uh, even though it was a really big deal, we only celebrated it um, the eve. But we celebrated just like uh, you, you would uh, celebrate New Year. We stayed up really late at night. We had a huge, huge meal. Like, that's the big thing. It's always the big, big meal. And uh, with all the different dishes that all symbolize different things, like usually wealth, long life, luck. But wealth was the big thing. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Ellen? Did you grow up... Uh observing the Lunar New Year? Absolutely. So my mother was an incredible cook. And so she would create a feast that was full of all the things that are the most classic, symbolic 
foods that you eat over New Year's. So that included, of course, spring rolls, because Mm -hmm. not only is it Lunar New Year, but it's the spring festival. And so it's the welcoming of spring, New Year. People do a lot of house cleaning and refreshing and kind of like it's supposed to be the reset button. So spring rolls, we would have dumplings and we would spend hours at the table with you know, multiple generations of our family wrapping dumplings. Whole fish is a must. Usually there is duck or chicken. My mother actually made this unbelievable dish where she would debone an entire chicken, cut all the chicken meat up with uh, sticky rice, mm. put chestnuts, carrots, peas, and stuff everything back into the chicken, oh, truss wow. it, and then roast it. Wow. So this was like a you know huge memory. Shrimp, of course, um, you know, it, it was really great memories growing up. And the food has significance, Grace, and you were touching upon that. Give us some of the symbolism tied to each type of food. Sure. Like Ellen was talking about the spring rolls, and they are called spring rolls because we eat them at the spring festival. But we also eat them at Lunar New Year because they look like gold bars. So the Ah. idea being if you eat them, you'll get more gold for the year. Um, It's same with um, dumplings. We especially eat those, the fried ones, because uh, they look like gold ingots, which is uh, ancient Chinese. Chinese gold coins. And that's the same thing. We eat a lot of those with the idea that we'll get a lot of gold for the year. Ellen was talking about the the whole fish. Um, I remember when I was younger and my mom would serve the whole fish and I would be kind of a little disgusted because I grew up in an area where uh, we were the only Asian family in the area. So when you order fish in a restaurant, it was always like a little white square or a little pink square. But when my mom served the fish, it was the whole fish with the eyes staring at you. Like, eyes looking at like, you. Like, oh, why do you have to serve the whole fish? But there was a reason why we served the whole fish. It's because the word for fish in Chinese is a homophone for a word that means abundance or wealth. And on Lunar New Year, you want to have all of your abundance. You want to have all of your wealth. If my mom cuts the head and the tail off of the fish and just gives me a little white square, that means I would only get a part of my wealth or a part Mm, of my abundance for the Lunar New Year. That's not good enough. You want the (laughs) whole thing. So that's why my mom would serve the whole fish. Also, one of the things about the fish is you're supposed to leave some behind because you are so abundant and you're so fortunate and lucky that you can afford to not finish it. Mm. Yes, leftovers. (laughs) The whole thing about leftovers, you're supposed to have more than enough because what you have, if you have leftovers, it means you'll have more than enough to eat for the whole year. Right. You mentioned uh, where you grew up. You grew up in in upstate New York. Is that right? And one of the things that's so interesting about Chinese, Chinese American cuisine is that it it penetrates like mm-hmm. every corner of the country. You go to a town with 700 people yes. and there's a restaurant serving some version of Chinese, Chinese-American food. How do you explain that? Oh, that's a good question. I think you could trace it all the way to when uh, the United States was really, really not letting in a lot of Asian immigrants, not a lot of Chinese immigrants. It was the Exclusion Act, basically. Uh, And there's very few loopholes for Chinese immigrants to come into the United States. And one of the loopholes was if they owned or their own business. And so Chinese immigrants found the loophole, and that's how they could come into the United States, by having their own Mm. restaurant. And so uh, I think that's where one of the seeds have planted. It was one of the few ways that um, Chinese people could come to the United States legally. And it's interesting because, uh, Grace, you you wrote a book. 
Chinese menu, the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods. And in the book, you talk about everything from chopsticks to rice to tea and all of our favorite dishes, including General So's chicken, which a lot of us have eaten, but never knew the origin stories of. Why did you write this book? Oh, that's a good question. So uh, back in 2004, I wrote a picture book for like first graders called Fortune Cookie Fortunes. And while I made that book for first graders, I did a lot of research on fortune cookies. And that's when I first found out that fortune cookies are actually a completely Asian American invention. If you go to China, nobody knows what a fortune cookie is. Oh. And uh, most people know that now, but back then that was kind of like news to me. And I remember telling a lot of my friends this and they were they were also kind of stunned and they would all say like oh so fortune cookies aren't even really Chinese and they always <laughs> said this like with a tone of like disgust almost and I kept hearing that and I, I told you how I grew up where uh, we were like the only Asian family I have a lot of identity issues about how Asian I am how Chinese I am and as I heard that I was like gosh people could say the same thing about me, like, oh, she's not really Chinese. And it made me feel really bad for the fortune cookie. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? The fortune cookie is actually a really cool and neat thing. It's probably one of the first Asian American foods. And that's not something we should like look down on. I think that's actually something we should celebrate and actually be proud of, just like how I feel about being Asian American. You know, maybe I'm not really Chinese, but I'm really proud of being Asian American. And uh, I felt like we should give the fortune cookie and Asian American food more respect, which is why I made this book. And it's hard to s square two parts of the story for me, because on one hand, the fact that Chinese American food is so ubiquitous mm -hmm. suggests a type of openness among Americans to new flavors and new influences. But many of the stories in the book are about, as you mentioned earlier, exclusion, discrimination. Mm. You talk about chop suey. I mean, sometimes you're like, you feel like, hey, this is sort of the, the good side of America. And then right there with it, something that feels like the dark side of America. Uh, and I think that's the bridge that most, I think, marginalized people here in the United States, we are always constantly walking that bridge, right? There's so many things about being Asian American that I love and I'm so proud of. and uh, But there's so many things about being Asian American that is a, a bit of a weight, you know? So mm. um, those are kind of the things that we celebrate as well as carry. Um, and Chinese food is an example of that. And Ellen, the Wonton Project, that's something you created uh, to help fight hate against the Asian American community. Tell us about it. And I know it uses food. Right. Yes. Well, I think like Grace, it is a double-edged sword, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and I probably spent the first 40-some years of my life squashing down all the neg negative component. Mm. And then when COVID hit and you heard about all these horrible acts of violence toward elderly and toward women and other Asians, I really felt torn as a person. I, I really had to question myself as to who I was. Was I Asian American? Of course, I'm Asian American. But I also carry the whole Chinese culture as part of my background. How would I feel if this had happened to yeah. any of either of my parents? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, food is such a um, healing connector to people. So I, I had been thinking all along, you know, my mother being an incredible 
cook. I had been thinking all along I wanted to do some sort of food to honor her. And during the pandemic, also as restaurants were suffering and trying to figure things out, I thought, well, wontons are a food that it's very inconsistent. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're just like a piece of skin folded together with no effort whatsoever. But for me, wontons were like a comfort food and something that really brought our entire family together. And so when the pandemic hit, I had already been kind of toying around with this idea of maybe doing some sort of wonton project. And I just thought to myself, you know, I don't know what to do. And so we started raising funds through selling wontons for anti-Asian discrimination. And then that's how we started moving forward. And I got to pivot because we have some of these wontons from the wonton project in front of us. And the smell has been sort of teasing us (laughs) throughout this conversation. And it's based on your mother's recipe. Correct, Ellen? That's right. So my mother is from Shanghai. My father's from Hunan, so further north. But we spent our childhood so many hours um, just making wontons and folding dumplings. So this was kind of second nature to me. That is one thing I feel confident about cooking is making the wonton. So we actually use pork and shrimp. And Mm. then we add cabbage or spinach. Um, I like to make mine really shrimpy. So Mm. um, I put like a third shrimp and one of my chefs is um, an expert in like charcuterie and he was just like you should puree the shrimp more and I was just like no no Asians want to see that like you know you have to have those bites of shrimp in there (laughs) so uh, you know we we kept that chunky as hopefully you're tasting Mm. Yeah, I, I took a bite, obviously. <laughs> I just had a whole one. I just like, swallowed one. It's delicious. I have a vegetarian. Uh, I have pork, I believe. Yeah, and you have pork. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Grace, I know you wrote about almost every possible dish. You want to put wontons in context sure. for us? Yes, while you're eating it. So mm-hmm. if you look at the etymology of the word, it's actually kind of translated to swallowing clouds. Uh, but if you look even closer at the etymology of the word, uh, it actually means something called chaos. And it's actually referring to the Taoist creationist story. So before there was a world, before there was life, before there was anything in the universe, everything was just this soup, this kind of brothy soup. That's all there was. And then after like 18,000 years, this white, round, egg-like shape appeared, like kind of congealed in that soup. And there was this huge giant, a huge giant named Pangu. And he woke up and he felt cramped inside this egg and he broke it open and he grew 10, like 10,000 feet every day, uh, pushing these to the top of the egg further apart from the bottom of the egg every day. And the top of the egg is the heavens and the bottom of the egg is the world. And he did this for, you know, 18, another 18,000 years until finally he was so tired, he fell over and he died. And with Pangu falling to the earth and dying, he gave life to everything in the world. And so when you break open your wonton and eat it, you are doing just like Pangu, creating the world. So much depth of flavor <laughs> in the soup and the story. And, and creating the world. <laughs> Every time you eat a wonton. a wonton, it changes the way you eat wonton. <laughs> and as we get ready to wrap up, I got to kind of end where we started when we talked about the Lunar New Year. Um, this is the year of the dragon. So what does that mean for 2024? 
So the dragon is a really, really interesting character. Uh, in Chinese culture, we venerate the dragon so much. We consider the dragon very self-sacrificing, very noble, like very different than like Games of Thrones dragons. You know, like <laughs> we consider the dragon very noble, very, very um, fierce, and very powerful. And so. This is a year that we can all be really, really successful. But the way that we're successful is if we act and think with the dragon's noble intentions. If we're empathetic, self-sacrificing, um, considerate, and uh, willing to help others. I love that. Me too. I also think I was born in the year of the dragon. So if it's your turn in the in the twelve cycle. Um, do, do you do anything special for that Lunar New Year celebration? So it doesn't exactly mean it's a lucky year for you. It means it's a very important year for you. Oh. And so it means that a lot of the things that you do this year will affect the next 12 years of your life. <laughs> wow. Big Minor year, stakes. Big 2024. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you both, uh, Grace Lynn and Ellen uh, Yin, for joining us today and talking about Lunar New Year, Chinese cuisine, and bringing delicious. some delicious food. Ooh. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Happy New Year. Ooh, love that. Always a pleasure to have Ellen Yin on the show. Grace Lynn's newest book is Chinese Menu, The History, Myths, and Legends Behind Your Favorite Foods. So Avi has been chomping at the bit because... <laughs> He stirred the pot during the first segment, and now I'm going to let him go ahead. He's, he's got a lot to say. I started something. Go ahead. I'm going to let you finish. It, I man. went off script earlier in the show. <laughs> I was complaining about the fact that we were told to talk about the mm -hmm. weather, and I asked whether folks want to hear about the weather, and mm -hmm. we got a lot of responses People from our listeners. People in those emails. Ellen says, no more weather talk. Let's make a curse jar, but for the weather, when you talk about it, put a dollar in. It's cold today. Come on, it's, it's winter. winter. <laughs> but Andrew makes an interesting counterpoint. Mm -hmm. Working in a research lab with some rooms without windows, hearing about the weather is great. It also makes me feel the best of Aww. local radio, that you are here and now experiencing what I'm experiencing. This is what radio offers that pre-recorded podcasts do not. And then Bernie quotes Mark Twain saying, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Ending in the mystical middle there. Thank you, Bernie. Yeah. More where weather I talk, sit. we shall see. I sit in the middle. I, I have no real opinion. <laughs> Avi has a strong opinion on this. But before we go, I got to mention, you know, our mingle tonight. Six o'clock. Six o'clock. We're going to have by. a live taping of Studio Two. You can still get tickets. WHRY.org slash events. Our show is now wrapped up. Thank you to our producers. Yeah, Debbie Builder, Paige Mori Bessler, Andreas Copes. They produce the show. Diana Martinez is our engineer. WHYY's audio general manager is Joan Isabella from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. My name is Avi Wolfman-Arend. And I am Cherry Gregg. 